And Simon Peter and his companions hunted for Jesus. And when they found him, they said to him, Everyone is searching for you. Would you all please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. After an entire month of answering all of your questions during our January sermon series, I am happy to be moving on. Now, don't get me wrong, I enjoy tackling different topics in sermons, but I always look forward to getting back to the rhythms of Scripture and worship. Because the problem with taking time every week to answer specific questions from a biblical perspective is the temptation to do what I called and said earlier, the thing we call proof texting. It's that practice where we take verses out of context and we reappropriate them in any way that helps us with our argument. And perhaps the very best example of this, and of course by best I mean the worst, is from Ephesians 5.22. Wives, be subject to your husbands. Now of course, as soon as those words left my mouth, I can see all of you, you can't see each other. All of the women who are married started to sink down a little lower in your pews, and all the men started to straighten up a little bit. Wives, be subject to your husbands. This verse has been used again and again and again to harm and to subordinate women in terrible and horrific ways. And what makes it all the worse is that we take this one verse out of its context and we use it to say something else. Because the verse immediately before wives be subject to your husbands, it says this, everyone be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. And just three verses later we can read, husbands love your wives just as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her. The love that Paul talks about here is not the hallmark version of love. Paul isn't saying that husbands need to buy flowers and chocolate for your wives every once in a while, though I promise it usually helps. But that husbands must sacrifice. They have to give even their very lives for their wives. So frankly, when you read it in the context of the whole passage, it's harder for men to be married to women than the other way around. But we don't get that. We don't get it when we just pick one verse and we use that one instead of the whole thing. In today's scripture, what Pam read for us, it's another great example. It starts like this. As soon as they left the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. What do you mean, as soon as they left the synagogue? What were they doing? What happened there? Is that important to know for the rest of the story? And we divide the Bible, Bible into these discrete units, and it's really strange. It's hard to imagine as strange, though, because we've been doing it our whole lives. But we don't do that with any other book. Like, think, if you can, about your very favorite book. The favorite book you've ever had in your life. You might be able to remember a line or two that really means a lot. But could you tell me what chapter it was in? Or what page number it's on? Probably not. But if I asked you what your favorite scripture was, I'm almost positive not only could you recite it for me, but you could tell me what book it's in, what chapter it is, and what the verse is. We do it with the Bible, but we don't do it with anything else. So we have this story. It's a day in the life of Jesus. 
after leaving the synagogue, whatever that means, they go to Peter's mother-in-law's house. Jesus makes her whole. He cures everyone who gathers around the door. Then he retreats to a deserted place for prayer. And finally, they leave for the next town to do it all again. But what happened before? What happened in the synagogue? Jesus brought his first four disciples to the synagogue that morning, and he taught. He taught as one having authority, and while he was there, he cured a man with an unclean spirit. And his fame began to spread throughout Galilee. So what does the synagogue have to do with the healing of Simon and Simon's mother-in-law? Or the curing of many people, or praying in a deserted place, or moving to the next town? Well, it's this. Jesus' is teaching cannot be separated from his healing. Jesus practiced what he preached. What he believed, it shaped how he behaved. Last Sunday, uh, as I said before, was the end of our sermon series on the questions. I was so relieved to have come to the end. Many of you were here for 11 o'clock service. And it was hotter than blazes in the sanctuary. I was sweating in my robe. Now, I don't usually say this. I've got to confess to you that I was waiting for the long hand on that clock up there to start spinning a little quicker. I was hot. I was tired. I wanted to go home. I wanted to take a nap. So we got to the last song on Christ the Solid Rock. I see I was looking over at Bunny trying to get her to speed it up a little bit, you know, kind of thing. And I, I did what I usually do. I, I walked from behind the altar, and I, I stood here on the top set. And I close my eyes and let you all just sing by yourselves for a second. It's one of these hallowed moments that you get as a pastor because everyone is literally facing the front and you can heal the harmonies like waves in a sanctuary. And so I had my eyes closed and I was just like, moving with the flow of this song. And then I did something I don't usually do. I opened my eyes. And I looked right here at Don Dory. And Don... I'm sorry, I'm just going to apologize right now. We're going to talk about you a lot. I looked right at Donna, and Donna collapsed. Like the whole of his body gave out, and he fell over. And it was so shocking to me that I ran toward him, and because we had wonderful people in this church, including two nurses, they, from different sides of the congregation, sort of immediately triangulated on Donna. And I, while everybody was still singing, I, I don't think even a lot of people noticed what happened. I came up to check, and both nurses gave me the thumbs up. One of them went out to call for the ambulance. And again, I was trying to get us through the hymn. I said a very abbreviated, very fast benediction, and then started pushing you out of the sanctuary. Because <laughs> I wanted to get the, the fire engine here, and the ambulance here, so they could check on God right away. But because you all are good people, everybody started crowding around. <laughs> I said, get out of the way! Move! I started pushing people in their back. And then I went into Boy Scout mode. Boy Scout mode is when you start looking at people and you give them jobs. You go get water for them. You make sure no one stays around. You start fanning them. You do this, you do this, you do this. I got everybody out of the way. I went outside. I waited for the ambulance. When they got here, I tried to explain what I had witnessed so they could come in and help Don as much as possible. And after I finally finished talking to them, I came to the sanctuary. So I thought, the last thing I need to do before he leaves is I need to pray for him. I need to go, I need to find Don, I need to pray for him before he goes to the hospital. And so I came from our doors here, and I walked into, through our narthex, into the sanctuary, and I went over to pray for Don, and I noticed that eight people were already standing around him, 
with their hands on his shoulder and on his head, and they were praying. I didn't ask anyone to do it. I didn't tell anyone to do it. And it froze me. I mean, I was immobile, standing between our doors, watching eight people, eight faithful people from our church, literally behaving because of what they believed. And so I stayed away. Sometimes you can't get close to the holy. You know what I mean? And so after they said their final amens, I went up to check on Don one last time. Of course, there were a group of ladies who were all using their bulletins, and they were fanning his face. And I said, Don, just because there's a bunch of beautiful women fanning you right now, don't let that go to your head, and don't expect that to happen every Sunday here in church. And he looked at me right in the eyes, and he said, we'll see about that. Obviously, for what it's worth, uh, Don is doing really well. Uh, the hospital and the nursing uh, the medical staff were able to get him over there and help him out really quickly. And he's here in church today. Amen? Amen. We don't need Don to have to tell us that there is a healing power in touch and in intimacy and in prayer. Over and over again in the Bible, we read about Jesus restoring people through his willingness to find them where they are and to offer them a new way. He doesn't wait for them to show up. He goes to them. Jesus is that intimate Messiah who found individuals in the muck of their lives, in the moments of our deepest frustrations, and says, follow me. From the very beginning of the Bible until the very end, we read again and again that it is not right for human beings to be alone. We are at our very best when we are together, even when the odds are stacked against us. We are the truest form of God's dream for us when we gather together, rather than trying to do it all by ourselves. We are the faithful vision of God when we congregate as a congregation. No one can do it on their own. Because when you've had an experience, when you've felt that healing of that touch, of that intimacy, of that community, it changes you forever. Jesus took Simon's mother-in-law by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began serving them. I've seen this image from the Gospels depicted in a number of ways, and one that stands out, Simon's mother-in-law is under a blanket with a thermometer sticking out of her mouth. And Jesus just taps her on the forehead and she springs up from the bed and she goes to get some lemonade to make sure all the men have something to drink. But that's not what Scripture says. It says she was healed and she served them. But the word for serve in Greek, it actually means she ministered to them. It's the word that we get for deacon. Simon's mother-in-law is the first deacon in the New Testament. She does not just serve them something to drink. She ministers to them. She becomes intimately involved with the same kind of healing that Jesus had just offered her. She was given a job to do. But just as a fair warning, practicing what you preach, it's no easy thing. I know that most of all since I'm the one who has to preach every week. There will come times when the last thing we want to do is gather with people we call the church. Whether it's because they stand for different political realities, or they speak the truth in love and it hurts, or they simply remind us too much of who we really are. It's not easy being the church. It's not. But even Jesus needed some time apart. 
Because after he healed Simon's mother-in-law, after the whole of the town came to be healed by him, he retreated to a deserted and an empty place. He had to be refilled with the Spirit after giving the Spirit from himself to others. And our whole lives are like that. It's a dance with the Holy Spirit of giving the Spirit to others to need it to be refilled once again. This story, this wonderful, wonderful story, beyond the scripture we read this morning, we experience a day in the life of the Lord. It's a day like any other day. Frankly, it's a day perhaps like today. When I was ordained, I knelt before the entire annual conference and the bishop took his hands and he placed them on my shoulder and on my head and he said, Taylor, take thou authority. Go and comfort the afflicted. Go and afflict the comfortable. It's not an easy task, but guess what? It's one we all get to do right now. Because in a second, I'm going to invite all of us to comfort someone in the church who's afflicted, and it's going to be so uncomfortable, it's going to make you feel like you're being afflicted while you're comfortable. Because <laughs> one of the things I've noticed, not just here in this church, but in all churches everywhere, is that it is so much easier to pray for someone than it is to ask for someone to pray for you. Oh, sure, you got something going on? Yeah, I'll put you on my prayer list. I'll take care of you. It's a whole other thing entirely to say, I am broken. I need help. I am not the whole vision God has for me. But if we can't do that for each other as the church and friends, we are not the church. So this is going to be very uncomfortable. And for that, I say sorry that I'm not sorry. But in a second, I'm going to invite all of you to stand here on the right half of the congregation. I want you to find somebody on the left half of the congregation. Somebody you're not married to, somebody you're not related to, perhaps someone who's a stranger to you. And all I want you to do is sit down somewhere in the sanctuary, talk for a couple minutes, share some things that you're wrestling with. You can use questions like, how can I pray for you? Where are you hurting? Where do you need help? Can you pray for someone you don't have to say, Lord, then God let your will be done. I don't really care what you say, what you share, how you pray. The only thing that's important to me is that everyone gets a chance to be heard. And everyone gets a chance to be prayed for. And I, I know it's going to be uncomfortable. I know it's going to be uncomfortable. We did this at the 830 service. I could feel the tension of everyone in my own body. But it's good and right for us to do this. So I'm going to give you a couple minutes. I'll start shouting out. We probably had enough time for uh, prayer for one another. So stand as you're able. Find somebody on the other side of the church. Hear what they've got to say. Pray for them. And then do the same.